Spencer Balfour in the Two Minute Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance, his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, there is another trade to discuss. Another trade concerning Dave Dombrowski and the Boston Red Sox to discuss. One and the same at this point. Dave Dombrowski, famous trading away prospects, has traded away a prospect. Anderson Espinoza, an 18-year-old right-hander, signed originally as an international free agent. He has gone to the San Diego Padres in exchange for Drew Pomeranz, who was himself acquired by San Diego in exchange for Yonder Alonso and Mark Zepchensky. I'm compelled to ask Cameron once again, is this vintage Dombrowski? And beyond that, is vintage Dombrowski really all that bad for the health of the baseball organization by which he's employed? One general manager who will likely not be making trades at the looming trade deadline is Terry Ryan. Terry Ryan's second tenure as the Minnesota Twins general manager has come to an end, dismissed by the club on Monday. What, I ask Cameron, is the legacy of Ryan and his extended tenure in the Twins organization? And in what direction is that organization likely to move? Will they hire, like the Brewers and Phillies, for example, a young, analytically-oriented Ivy League type, or perhaps someone with a more well-established scouting background? Dave Cameron shares his thoughts. He shares other thoughts, too, in the form of a vote of confidence for the podcast in general and this episode specifically. This is a giant waste of our time. More heartwarming comments like that one, and also that specific heartwarming comment in what's to follow. But first, a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. There are many ways by which one can be let down by life. Like when your father is disappointed, you've become a baseball weblogger, for example. SeatGeek is unable to help anyone with that sort of situation. However, they can help with the ticket-buying experience, either for sporting events or concerts. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets from all available sites into one place to aggregate them, as it were, so it is nigh impossible to miss the best possible seating option for your event. Better yet, every ticket on SeatGeek receives a grade based on the value, so one can immediately find underpriced seats to exploit the ticket-buying market, as it were. And finally, I would be loath not to mention how SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, for example, SeatGeek always quotes the full price from the beginning to the end of the transaction. And for having endured this message, listeners are entitled to a $20 rebate off the first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how you claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code FANGRAPHS today or at your nearest possible convenience with which we have completed the sponsor's message and nearly, almost entirely, this introduction. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Is it humid? Is that what you're talking about? It's very hot and very humid. Yeah. Well, nothing more uh, scintillating in terms of conversation than discussion about the weather. Well, I'm sure you'll move us on to some obscure prospect no one's ever heard of. It hurts. Because it's true? Mm. Hey, Max Schrock, right? (laughs) He's playing really well. 
And Max Schrock is playing really well. Yeah, he's invincible. You uh, know why people have heard of him? Because you won't stop talking about him. The practical analytics question today <laughs> is one that's actually somewhat related to what you're discussing. Uh, okay. I think it dovetails. I don't know if it's exactly dove. If it's a dovetail, it's where it's like a it's like a broken dovetail <laughs> is how it works. But uh, so last week after our, our discussion, I said, "How can you save the world?" You know. Yeah. And that's where you were at when we discussed it. A listener, a concerned listener. Um, suggested that uh, we, or perhaps merely I in this particular case, uh, turn my attention to an episode of Freakonomics regarding uh, essentially saving the world most efficiently, where where one would uh, spend the most, uh, ought to spend one's money, ought to spend the world's money, essentially. Huh. This is an episode of the Freakonomics podcast? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I, I must have missed that one. Rebroadcast, it looks like, on December 23rd. Uh, oh, yeah, right, right before Christmas. It's yeah, a good, well, good right. way to figure out how to get people to not listen to it. Well, that was a rebroadcast, right. Dave Cameron. It was uh, broadcast really before. But it, um, the, it mostly concerned, uh, um, mostly consisted of a conversation with a public intellectual named Bjorn Larsen. Bjorn, <laughs> I'm sure I'm pronouncing <laughs> I'm sure, it correctly. I'm sure you nailed that exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and he works for, let's see, Copenhagen Consensus. Okay. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Uh, no. Okay. I'm telling the story poorly, but yeah. it's fine. It doesn't. None of it really matters. Yeah. Copenhagen Consensus Center, maybe, is what they're called. In any case, uh, he's taken up the question, because he found that no one else had, of saying uh, what essentially on what um, charitable spending, you might say, aid-related spending, um, does the greatest um, provides the greatest return on investment. Okay. I will tell you right now, I've only listened to the first half of the program, so I cannot <laughs> provide with you an answer. I do know that he got into some trouble, uh, and he actually lost his funding from the uh, Den- uh, Danish government. Nope. Nope. Yep. Danish government. Because he found that perhaps uh, spending money to prevent um, climate change was not the most efficient. And they they wanted him to say it was, I, I think, to some degree. Huh. Um, he found, I think, that the, the Kyoto Protocol he found required something in the uh, something like 180 billion dollars of spending per year. That's a lot. Yeah, and he found it seems as though if you just spent 180 billion dollars once, you could essentially get everyone on Earth uh, clean clean drinking water. I yeah, think. I was actually going to guess that clean drinking water would be uh, maybe maybe the most efficient way because it has such a huge impact on long-term health. Right, and I guess probably because it's it's so utterly unavailable in some places. Is that right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right, there's places in the world where people just don't have any, even though it's like it's below them. Like if you broke up the ground and dug a well, they would have access to water. But there's, uh, yeah, they, so they they lack a, a resource that allows them to sustain. Uh, sustain themselves long enough into life that they can make a real substantial change for their country. Right. Yeah. So that would be – yeah, and that's just one of those uh, – I guess it's such a fundamental yeah. – fundamentally important um, um, need that once satisfied can create – I guess it creates opportunities from it, right? Right. Yeah. So his job uh, – what he's made his job is to look at problems that – you know essentially give the high, uh, highest return on investment, um, which is all interesting of itself, and perhaps we will address it next week 
but I was thinking about this concept of return investment, which I guess is probably part and parcel of economics as a whole, right? Uh, it's yeah. not always a financial return. Right. You have to define the terms, I guess, of that return. Right. Yeah. You you would generally want to figure out like how to maximize utility. Mm-hmm. And utility doesn't have to be cash. Right. So let's uh, let's uh, let me ask you a question: Is what is the utility of the service that we render to the public? Slim. This is a giant waste of our time. No, but not even this program. I'm saying Fangraphs.com. Oh yeah. And, and I would say also just in general public-facing sports analytics. So what I think is if, we, the if, utility? if we were to like put the best spin on it we possibly could, mm-hmm. I think we can potentially present ourselves as like educators of. Uh, uh, critical thought, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's probably a decent amount of people who've read Fangraphs who maybe have learned to take a somewhat more um, open-minded approach to things rather than just being accepted what they were, accepting what they were told. Beyond baseball, or, you're suggesting? Yeah, right. Like, yeah. maybe you could take the lessons you've learned about how baseball teams have been run and how they should be run and come up some of the inefficiencies uh, within the sport and say, oh man, you know, if this thing that was like widely accepted to be true in baseball could be wrong, maybe these things in other areas of life could be wrong as well. And instead of just accepting what I heard from the person on TV, I should think about it for myself and try to find data and see if I can support these conclusions with actual evidence. And so perhaps, uh, perhaps we've been able to help some people, uh, think more rationally about mm-hmm. life in general. And it should be uh, said that you were, uh, well, you, uh, I mean, uh, you were a reader of, of uh, baseball analytics before you, you were a writer of it uh, by, yeah. by definition. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the guys like Rob Nyer and Bill James and um, those who I kind of cut my teeth on uh, certainly helped me see the world in a, in a uh, different way than I had previously. Um, so I do think that there's some benefit to, you know, uh, exposing people who might not otherwise be exposed to this idea of like seeing the world through a critical eye, not necessarily to critique the world, but to, to not just uh, blindly accept whatever comes to them as the truth. Um, but you know, I think realistically we're entertainers. Like that's like the most positive spin I could put on what we do. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think we're providing a distraction to people. Uh, right. So, so for example, I don't think, I don't think this is top secret information, right? Is uh, the, um, we have access to, to page view information, right. and the most traffic times tend to be between 9 and 5 p.m. <laughs> right. When people are at work and they don't want to be working, they're like, I'm going to read Fangraphs instead. We right. Distract them from productivity. From productivity. But, uh, I mean, I, I assume that if, if not us, then it would be some other manner of, of yeah. uh, Internet site or some other distraction to which they'd be churning. Right. I mean, there's there's a demand for distraction. We aren't creating that demand. Yeah. We are we are providing a supply to that demand and saying, <laughs> okay, you want to be distracted? We will give you something that will not get you fired. Uh, like you know, other people, other, yeah. other things people might look at at work would get them removed from their jobs. Fan graphs, at least. Uh, if your boss walks by and you don't alt tab fast enough away, you can probably still retain your position. The um, so the way you're describing it, if we're taking the most virtuous viewpoint of it. You're essentially regarding, and this is this, it, this relates to a thought I've had recently, which is, um, and actually how I view these conversations we have, even though they, they generally provide little utility on a number of fronts. Uh, I um, I do know that one criticism um, that I've received, not universally at all, but certainly one uh, some dissenting voices, and that uh, you've also I think 
um, received as well, is that it is not about baseball. It is not strictly about baseball from the beginning to the end of the program. Right. There are people who are uh, sad that a baseball site has a podcast that is rarely about baseball. Right. But if we take the most this most virtuous viewpoint, and I think that uh, this idea is one I had about about um, you know what we might call sabermetrics, baseball analytics in general, is that it is essentially a laboratory for a certain sort of thought, right? A certain sort of uh, casting a critical eye on anything. And again, when you say when we say critical, just to say, um, is there data? Is there some sort of evidence to support this point of view? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even have to be data, right? Because there are some things in life that you won't be able to collect data on. But I think it's a thought process of when information comes to you. I think uh, oftentimes as children, we just kind of accept it, especially if it comes from authoritarian positions. And we just say, okay, well, my parents told me this, or my teacher told me this, or the media told me this, or I read it in a book. And we just say, okay, well, that must be true because someone who knows more than I did told me it's true. Yeah. And I think we're what we'd like to do is maybe create, uh, not necessarily we, like this isn't our personal responsibility, but it would be better for the world if people, instead of just accepting what they were told, said, hmm, uh, I'm curious about that. Let me do further research and see if I can come to my own conclusion. Now, what about, do you think that in terms of, in terms of the return on the investment, do you not also think that, I, I think, so for example, I am a man, a barely a man, but I am a man, and uh, I find it difficult I find uh, socializing with other men difficult. Uh, even take it with my father, for example. I don't necessarily always know what to do with him, but I do know that sport creates a safe space in which we can actually talk, right? Right. And it facilitates conversation. And I think that um, that's true probably for, I mean, a lot of people in general, but certainly um, male-human relationships. And uh, I think that a nice thing that, um, or that a thing, that a, that a site like ours could do is it creates a, another voice in that conversation. Now, uh, it's possible I've certainly come across situations where people and their fathers get into fights about sport all the time because the younger one has the more what we might call progressive or data-driven baseball views, whereas the other one ha- uh, you know, tells him to get out of his mother's basement, which is actually his own basement <laughs> as well, unless the parents are divorced, which is uh, true for 50% of households. Anyway, the point is that... Uh, it, it, and that's maybe a question of entertainment too. Is it provides sort of fodder for a conversation slightly more interesting than the weather, but not as combative as politics, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're generally referring to is basically the ability to build a community, right? So, like, theoretically, you would like to have community with your own family members, <laughs> regardless of the distraction that allows you to get there. But not everyone has that, right? Like, so, some people don't have, including you know, both of us don't have. Uh, real easy abilities to talk with our fathers about things. And so <laughs> having a, uh, uh, kind of a common bond is, uh, Im- important to life. I think in, it, what we basically see is humans look for things that can bond them together, whether it's sports or religion or politics or whatever it is. People look for things to have in common so they can say, oh, you're kind of like me. Mm-hmm. Let's do this together and let's go through this life together. And so, uh, hopefully the, analytical community can uh, still be something of a community and, and potentially find uh, or allow people to find other like-minded people to say, okay, let's be curious about these ideas about life together. Okay. I, I think that's fair. We discussed about – this was a, a brief conversation about the return on investment, if it exists at all, uh, for, uh, for Save Metrics. Reading. The nice thing is for the reader, uh, we're not charging them. So the only investment is the 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes occasionally right. uh, of time they're they're spending. And, uh, you know, 
they were probably just me listening to some other podcast anyway. So. Yeah, and I hope I hope people listen to this not while the not instead of something else that's important, but like merely on a like a commute that would be right. made yeah. that would be made even worse. Right. Just if you were just sitting there like getting honked at, yeah. maybe we make your life like two percent or running. Ugh. Yeah, I still don't know why people run. Yeah, Running's yeah, yeah it is good for you, but no, um, it's terrible. Is it? Oh, it's terrible for you. <laughs> it's not terrible for you. It's just terrible. It's to terrible do. to do. Yeah, you know, I've been walking a lot. I live at 1.3 miles from this cafe, and so I walk back and forth that every day. Walking, I think, is a great exercise. It's great. You see your own community. You you say hi to people in the way, and yeah. you don't. You just it's different. It's different. You don't hurt your knees all the time. It's running for lazy people. Yeah. Right. But you get, you know, you get results from it. Anyway, it's fine. Uh, <clears throat> there, uh, there will be enough. There'll be, we can uh, invoke Dave Dombrowski perhaps for a third straight week. Uh, but let's discuss another GM, or in this particular case, I suppose, ex-GM Terry Ryan. Do you mind if I ask you about Terry Ryan? Sure, you can ask away. Terry Ryan, I believe, has been dismissed uh, as the general manager of the Twins. That's correct. Perhaps... Uh, now, he was preceded, I think, maybe by Bill Smith. Is that a person? Yes, that's correct. And then Bill Smith was preceded by? Terry Ryan. Terry Ryan. Okay, so uh, is this opening the door for Bill Smith to take no, over the reins? No, no. I think uh, after 30 years of having two GMs running the team, uh, the, the twins might be ready for a new direction. Okay. <clears throat> Can you summarize in, in 10 seconds uh, Terry Smith's Nope. Terry Smith? No. no. That's the monster that's made out of <laughs> uh, Terry Ryan's essentially his legacy in Minnesota, I guess. It could Not be more 10 than 10 seconds. seconds. No, yeah, no. I can't do that in 10 seconds. Uh, I think so Ryan uh, had a big hand in kind of building the Twins into one of the most successful mid-market uh, teams 10 years ago when they had a, a good run of uh, success, and, and a large part of that was uh, based on kind of bucking the trend on what pit types of pitchers people wanted. So, like, the Twins model of pitching has uh, turned into a little bit of, like, a running joke now since it hasn't worked for a while. But back when they had Brad Radke and uh, Carlos Silva and pitchers of that ilk, the, tw- the team did very well uh, kind of finding command change-up guys who didn't throw as hard, and they went the other direction from when everyone was looking for guys who threw 95 miles an hour back when that was rare. Frequently uh, uh, going the other direction is, uh, especially if you're the only team doing it, that's, um, there's usually some good to that, right? Yeah, it depends on why you're going in the other direction. Like, so. if everyone is running from a bear and you're like, ah, market opportunity, I'm going <laughs> the bear. Like, that's just silly. You don't do that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think in this case, the Twins were smart enough to say, look, maybe there's some value in guys who don't throw as hard but mix, mix pitches well and have good command, and they may not give as many strikeouts, but they can avoid walks and we can put a good defense behind them, and uh, we can build a winning team that way. And they did. Uh, but, unfortunately, I think the Twins – didn't necessarily keep up with the times. Uh, Terry Ryan is definitely an old-school scout-first guy, which nothing wrong with that as long as you're willing to surround yourself with people who might be able to bring other skills to the table. The Twins do have an analytics staff, but it was slow to develop and probably lags a bit behind other organizations at this point, and uh, their decision-making hasn't been as informed by some of the advances in, in information uh, as other teams, and so I think they've... So they've made some mistakes. They spent a lot of money on Urban Santana and Ricky Nolasco and Phil Hughes. And, um, you know, I think when you're a mid-market team, you can't necessarily afford to make those kinds of mistakes. And so at this point, uh, it's probably time for the Twins to have a little bit of a culture shift and say, okay, you know, we've done things a certain way for a very long time. It might be time for us to try to do things a different way. Now, it, it should be said that the current edition of the, the Twins possesses some combination of 
um, talented prospects and talented young players who are on the major league club. They have Miguel Sano, Max Kepler, uh, Byron Buxton. I mean, those three players alone are pretty exciting. And then, of course, you have what H- Jose Barrios yep. uh, in AAA. So there's a there is quite a bit, it seems, of uh, promise waiting in the wings. Yeah, I think the fact that you mentioned Max Kepler before Byron Buxton tells you a lot about how Byron Buxton has developed. Uh, like a year ago, he was the number one prospect of baseball and was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago was being compared to Mike Trout. And, uh, now at this point, it's, uh, questionable whether Byron Buxton can make enough contact in order to be a good big league hitter and, and whether he might be more Billy Hamilton than Mike Trout. Yeah, actually, can we, uh, just a brief detour with Buxton? Uh, it does appear, looking over his minor league track record, that they're really, uh, especially if you take into account his age relative to his levels, it was not a huge concern about contact. I, I think he did not put up particularly egregious strikeout numbers, maybe higher than you'd like to see, but again, once adjusted for age relative to level, um, and then once also accounting for all of his other skills, it, it never seemed like it was going to uh, to be something that undid him. And yet as a major leaguer, I think he struck out in over a third of his plate appearances, and that's after 300-something plate appearances. Yeah, I mean, I think, so what we've kind of been able to find out through research, and I think Chris Mitchell has pointed this out, is like, um, strikeout rates tend to be one of the earliest signs, of kind of a warning indicator um, in the minor leagues, where if you struggle to make contact against minor league pitchers, and not even like at running a, you know, Russell Brand in 40% strikeout rate, but if you're, you know, even below average in terms of strikeout rate in the minor leagues, you're probably going to strike out a lot in the big leagues. It probably means you have some kind of hole in your swing that can be exploited by better pitchers. Um, so Buxton never ran 35 or 40% strikeout rates, but he was 20, 25%, which for a not power hitter is a bit problematic. And so if you look at it and say, okay, he's going to strike out 20 to 25% of the time against you know, low quality pitchers, maybe at the big leagues that is 25 to 30%, something in that line. To be a good major league hitter and strike out 25 to 30% of the time, you have to hit for a lot of power or at least a good deal of power. And I think that was probably the area where um, scouts may have gotten in front of themselves a little bit in projecting Buxton's long-term power. He might still get there, but to this point, even in the minor leagues, he's not really hit for a lot of power. And so, um, you know, we've seen guys like Jackie Bradley Jr. who have overcome this, right? And like they or George Springer, power. I think you cited him during your trade yeah. value series. George Absolutely. Springer is really George Springer is uh, a guy who's improved dramatically and uh, cut down on the strikeout rate. It's not that something can't be fixed. But it is a problem. Buxton's either going to have to stop striking out a lot, or he's going to have to hit for more power, or potentially do both. Uh, Carlos Gomez, who the Twins gave up on uh, early in his career, blossomed into a player who figured out how to hit for power later. It's not like this is impossible, and no one should be writing off Byron Buxton. Uh, but I think it seems clear that he's a bit further away from his ceiling than than people would have wanted to admit a year ago. Right. I guess, and there's also this. Uh, you, you look at the players who possess that skill set with the the swings and misses. Um, uh, what, who was the player you mentioned just a moment ago? Carlos Gomez. Okay, Carlos Gomez, right? Uh, Mel, uh, Melvin Upton Jr. Is yeah. he? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, another, that's that. Another center thing. fielder swings and misses a lot. Yeah, and he's uh, um, well, like his brother, of course, too. When he's making contact, um, it's going well, and when he's not, uh, it's going poorly. There was uh, maybe Cameron Mabin. Does that sound yep. familiar? Mm-hmm. And there was a Brett. There was a Brett someone. Brett Jackson. Yeah, Brett Jackson, way he, too much swing and miss. Right, but he wasn't he also uh, wasn't he considered elite in other ways? 
He was a considered a really good defensive center fielder with good tools. He was a first round pick, but just never made enough contact to make it work. Right. So there's that. Uh, there is that that line, right? Yeah. There's a threshold basically, yeah. and and it, it the threshold changes depending on how much power you have. Like Miguel Sano, also lots of swing and miss in his game, but he hits the ball really hard and really far, and so there's a, a better value on contact with a guy like Sano. So that's going to have to be what Buxton. He's going to have to improve one of the two. He has to make more contact or make more value on contact. At this point, he's uh, not showing he's been able to do either. Right, and I suppose it also uh, uh, with the with that you also have to factor in how, how willing a guy is to lay off of pitches that are not his pitch. Yeah, I mean that for a young player, that's often a lot of the problem. Is contact is just swinging at the right pitches, right? right? So like Buxton, I don't think has like a Pablo Sandoval swing problem, but he's not, definitely not controlling the strike zone. Um, and so when you're swinging at pitches out of the zone with some frequency, and I think he makes very low contact on swings out of the zone, uh, that's a real problem. You either need to learn to lay those off or you need to foul them off or something, but you can't consistently swing at pitches that you can't hit and be a good pitcher. I promise we're, we're still talking about the Twins here, but I just wanted to ask you, I've recently had occasion to um, examine Steven Souza's uh, statistical record for okay. this year, and I wonder, I wonder how you think of where, where he fits in in this uh, essentially um, this continuum we're constructing here. We have the we had Upton, we had Mabin, we had Brett Jackson, who never really became anything, uh, and then uh, Stephen Souza Jr. Yeah, I mean, Sousa, an over Sousa third, has yeah. a lot more power, I think, developed power uh, than some of these other guys, right? It's like um, Sousa's a swing and miss guy, but maybe not quite to Sano's level, but a guy who, when he hits the ball, does some damage with it and has some real power. Um, so I think you have a decent amount of those kinds of guys floating around baseball, like the Mark Trumbos of the world, right, who can bounce up and have good years from time to time, but they're also really inconsistent. When the power goes away, they're they're not very good. Uh, Buxton has a higher floor because he can potentially be a gold glove center fielder, uh, and if he either improves his power or his contact, he could become a much better player than Souza could. Um, but I think Souza is probably ahead of him in terms of uh, value on contact at this point. Okay, let's go back to the Twins. With regard to, uh, you, know, you said that maybe the last decade things had sort of passed them by. The, um, anecdotally, to me, they have always they have seemed like a club um, over the last maybe even two decades that um, maybe has been slower to act. But instead of, I mean, I I always assumed that they weren't. It wasn't the most progressive front office. But I just assumed that they that the club realized that given the amount of money they were going to be spending on their roster, they just knew that they weren't going to be particularly competitive every year. And so there was sort of this tacit awareness of the ebbs and flows of their success. And so there would be lean years followed by those years in which you had, you know, a young cost-controlled Morneau and Maurer on the same team that, you know, that would excel. And then there would be this dip again. And then around, you know, you would hope, hopefully be graduating Sano and Buxton at the same time, and they would be good, and then you'd have a good team again. Yeah, but I think there's potentially the reason uh, Terry Ryan got fired is they didn't read the tea leaves on this season very well. I mean, so like last year, I think they finished, what, a couple games over 500, and there was some excitement for the Twins, but they weren't a very good team last year. They uh, dramatically outperformed expectations based on their underlying statistics, and there were a bunch of reasons to believe that they were going to regress pretty heavily. They have, and then uh, they've kind of gone back more towards the below-average team that the projections thought they were going to be coming into the season. Um, so instead of kind of continuing to build for the future, the Twins uh, kind of 
stood pat this offseason, didn't make moves to kind of uh, add more long-term value. They um, kind of set themselves up as wildcard contenders. And so then when you do that and you kind of create – um, maybe false expectations among your fan base, the disappointment is more harsh, right? So like if you have a team like the Brewers or the Reds or one of the, you know, even the Padres, who I think people knew going into the season weren't going to be any good, it's not this crushing blow when the team turns out to be bad. In the Twins case, they didn't do a very good job of managing expectations, uh, after last season where they overachieved. I feel like maybe the same thing happened with the Mariners like four years ago, five years yeah, ago. Yeah, after Jack Zorensic's first year, uh, uh, where they, I think, won 87 or 88 games or something like that and then crashed pretty hard. Um, yeah, I think it's happened to a number of teams over the years where they uh, win a bunch of games kind of in an unsustainable manner, convince themselves that it was uh, that because they're actually a good team and not because things broke their way. And then when things stop breaking their way, they're like, ah, what, what happened here? You're going to manage expectations. Managing expectations is important, and I think uh, Terry Ryan failed to do that this year. Um, and so do you expect then the Twins to – now we saw – who was hired as a, as a GM or president this past – I mean, we saw like David Stearns in Milwaukee, for example. He was given the GM job with the Brewers, yeah. Right. And um, Philadelphia, they had what's sort of a more senior member who's – president but they also Andy, Andy McPhail Andy McPhail right but they hired a, a youngish more analytically oriented GM Matt Clintech Matt Clintech right and yeah. so do you I mean do you expect the to- are we just doing like the trivia portion of the, of the podcast well, I, I expected you would know the names the yeah. the point is uh, is it you know what, what, do you expect that the, that the twins will go in the same direction so the, the definitely the trend has been when kind of scouting run organizations have failed over the last few years is to pivot and say, okay, you know, we're going to try and catch up with the times. Ownerships uh, across baseball certainly aware of uh, kind of the, the shift towards younger analytical uh, executives. Um, and so this has definitely been the trend. Not every team has gone that direction. I mean, San Diego hired AJ Preller. Arizona hired Tony La Russa and Dave Stewart. So it's not like it's a given that like every time a job opens up that some numbers guy is going to get the job and it also shouldn't necessarily be that way like it's uh statistically unlikely that the 30 most qualified people to run a team in baseball are all (laughs) ivy league educated young white guys like that's just not uh that that's probably not going to be the case and so um i wouldn't think that the twins necessarily need to hire a kind of a stat nerd kind of guy Mm -hmm. but they should at least consider them which maybe in the past they might not have been willing to do right uh so what do you think is going to happen if you had to – do you have like a GM favorite if you're going to handicap this particular event? Yeah, I was kicking, kicking some names around this morning with one of my friends in the game, and uh, we were trying to think of like, okay, who would fit in in uh, Minnesota? And um, I think the most interesting name that came up was Alex Anthopoulos. So most recently the GM of the Toronto Blue Jays was kind of forced out or left because of a power struggle uh, in Toronto. He's now serving as a, a scout for the um, – Dodgers, I think they gave him a, a more senior title than that, but he's one of the guys in that uh, front office, but certainly doesn't have uh, as much power as he used to have in Toronto. Um, probably would love to run a, another team. Um, has some experience in cold climates, so at least we know that like a Canadian in Minnesota wouldn't be too out of his uh, out of his depth. Um, and you know, potentially. Uh, scouting enough uh, in terms of his background to appeal to the Twins' kind of organizational culture to where he wouldn't be such a rapid change of organizational culture that uh, that it would be, you know, a total overhaul, but also as a guy with some success who's uh, 
um, you know, got a track record of, of building teams. And so I think Anthopolis could be a really interesting fit for the Twins if they want a, an established GM with experience. Yeah, he's a case, uh, I have to think, somewhat rare, of a person who he left sort of up on top. I mean, the, the, the Blue Jays didn't win the World Series, but they made the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, and, they were successful, and he, and he decided, I mean, they, they were essentially demoting him after a successful season, so he decided not to take the demotion. Um, and But I think he's a guy who, if he expressed interest, uh, he would probably get an interview for almost any job in baseball that, you know, was open. Right, okay. Uh, you've mentioned A.J. Preller a couple times during this conversation. He has constructed – well, let's talk about Preller. Uh, uh, August Fagerstrom brought this up, I think, to, at the end of last week is the the strange trajectory of A.J. Preller as general manager of the San Diego Padres um, pretty soon after being hired to that position. He got rid of a lot of minor league talent in that organization. I think maybe most notably Trey Turner. Is that right? Yeah, Trey Turner and Joe Ross in the Will Myers trade. Right. To, um, they, and those two players ended up in Washington. Yep. Um, of course, Joe Ross had success at the major league level. Uh, Trey Turner, you know, there's a he's been good as a minor leaguer. A lot of optimism about right. Turner. Yeah. A lot of optimism. considered one of the top ten prospects in baseball. Right, uh, and he traded away a, a lot of other talent as well, and brought in a number of pieces. Um, I mean, the, probably the, men, the Matt Kemp acquisition was the most notable. Yeah, um, a, fa- a Fangraphs podcast listener probably does not need to be reminded of the Matt Kemp trade. <laughs> right. So, uh, but what he's done after their Four season last year, and I think probably starting with the Kimbrel trade, yeah, uh, where they acquired some talent from, uh, including I guess what Man- Manuel Margot. Um, Manny highly, Margot, I think most people call him yeah. Manny Margot. Yeah, Manny Margot, a highly thought of prospect from the Boston organization. Got yeah. rid of Kimbrel. Uh, they've also um, uh, say another trade that they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can talk about the most recent one. Of swapping Drew Pomeranz also to Boston for uh, Anderson Espinoza. Seems like uh, Preller has identified Dave Dombrowski, probably wisely so, as the guy to trade with. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, so that, right, so this one, this most recent one netted them, Anderson Espinoza, a, what, a, to- a top 100 type prospect, right, from the Red Sox organization? Top, top 25, if you believe, uh, Baseball America, Keith Law, uh, the various prospect rankers. I think uh, in his write up, Eric Longenhagen here at Fangraphs noted that he would be a 60 future value player, which generally is in the 10 to 30 range. So it seems like the general consensus is that Espinosa is one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. Right. Uh, but also should be noted just 18, right? Eight, 18 and an A-ball. So uh, in a, in a, an interesting question of value, because I think at the time the trade was announced, the general consensus was, here's Dave Dombrowski overpaying again, giving up uh, elite young talent for rentals or short-term gain. Uh, this is what Dombrowski does. He comes in and torches the farm system. And, um, I think there's some truth to that. And like the Kimball trade really probably was a significant overpay, uh, for bullpen help. And there were other ways the Red Sox could have gone about adding a good reliever to their bullpen this year. Uh, but in this trade, I'm, I'm less convinced that this is, uh, Dombrowski being reckless with young talent, uh, and really punting the future in, in order to win now. Because I think if you look at it, Pomeranz has two and a half years of team control remaining at very cheap years because they're arbitration-eligible seasons, but he hasn't thrown enough innings to really rack up the counting stats that arbiters are going to look at. So he's going to be not paid all that highly through arbitration. Um, so you're getting you know, not just the 2016 stretch run, but 2017, 2018 as well at discounted salaries 
for a guy who's at least three, maybe four or five years away from the big leagues and is about the riskiest asset you could possibly have in your minor league system, uh, I'm not so sure that the Red Sox overpaid here. Do you think there's, do you think there's a difference? Do you think there has been a difference between, um, getting an, an 18 year old, between an 18 year old prospect who's been in a system for two years because he was signed as an international free agent a, or a player who's the same age but is being drafted out of high school because, of course, the high school pitcher, uh, there's a lot of risk associated with that. Is it the same level of risk for the for the IFA guy? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we know for sure. Um, I think you could look at, like, the Brady Akins of the world or the Tyre Colex and say, look, you know, a lot of other highly thought of 18-year-old prospects have, have gone really poorly over the last couple of years. And so you can look at these guys and say, look, when you have an 18-year-old pitcher in A-ball, uh, a lot can go wrong before they get to the big leagues. But I don't think we necessarily know that international players of the same age develop on the same curve as high school pitchers who potentially were overworked in high school where you're going to have uh, much stricter controls on workloads if you're in a professional organization that has your future in, in their mind when they're asking you to throw you know, 50 or 75 pitches instead of 125 to 150 to win some high school championship. Uh, so I think that there's arguments to be made that maybe Espinosa would be less risky than a high school first-round pick, uh, but I don't think we know that with a lot of confidence. Okay, so... <clears throat> Uh, Preller and the Padres acquired Pomeranz this past offseason, right? They did, for Yonder Alonso and Mark Shipchinski, which uh, I think you'd have to admit was a huge win. Yeah, right, because now, so essentially that, uh, I mean, it's not exactly like this, but it's not un- entirely unlike trading those two players, uh, Zipchinski and Alonso, for Anderson Espinosa. Well, so, I, I, you know, I'm going to... Yes. He churned those, he churned those assets. Within a period of six months or nine months, whatever it's been, he turned uh, a first baseman who's a replacement level player and a middle reliever into a very good prospect. But I think you can't ignore the fact that the path to that was that he had an above average major league starting pitcher under control for two and a half years. Uh, I think the, the, the Padres absolutely should have traded Drew, uh, Drew Pomeranz. He was too risky to hold on to. Keeping him would have been crazy. This probably was the best offer they had on the table for him, given that Pomeranz has never thrown more than 100 innings before and it comes with a lot of risk himself. So this was probably the right deal for San Diego. That said, I'm not 100% sure that this is the best deal they could have gotten, period. I mean, certainly it would be a risky proposition for them to keep Pomeranz, but if you think about, like, had Pomeranz been able to sustain his success over the rest of the season in the first half of next year and throw, you know, a normal amount of innings and, and, and kind of show that he could sustain those starters' workload, if you were trading a three-ish win pitcher next year without the kind of health and durability concerns Pomeranz comes with now, and he's making whatever five million bucks or something next year through his, through arbitration, and still had another year of control after that, I think you'd probably get more than Anderson Espinosa in a year. Now certainly. Uh, you have a, the risk that Pomeranz goes to zero, and they kept Tyson Ross last year, and certainly watched his trade value go down. Same with Andrew Kashner. That's not a risk the Padres should have taken, mm-hmm. but I do think that there's a chance that if Pomeranz pitches well for Boston over the next year, uh, that they could potentially, even if they get to a point where they want to move him, Pomeranz's value could go up, and uh, they could potentially deal him for more future value than Espinosa uh, when, when and if they want to move him before his contract expires. Is is Rich Hill going to be traded? Yes. Okay. Unless he like is really just permanently injured, but even then, someone will take a shot on him. Oh, because he has a blister problem at this point. Yeah, a blister. He only threw like five pitches in this game. Yeah, right. Well, it's supposed to be his last start in Oakland, where all the scouts were in attendance. It won't be his last start in Oakland now because no one got to see him pitch, so he'll probably throw again this week. He uh, um, 
Oh, that was a – I mean, so we just talked about a situation where Oakland uh, probably did not make out particularly well on a deal Yeah. Uh, in terms of Pomeranz. They, this appears to have been – well, of course, there were questions. Is, uh, what is Rich Hill – what is he going to do in 2016? Yeah. I mean, because, I think even the A's had those questions. I don't think they knew what to expect. Right. And um, But he actually – his numbers compare uh, – he, he, he's had a very similar season to Pomeranz, actually, Rich Hill. Yeah, I think uh, if you look at them, they're two of the most similar pitchers in baseball, and they're both very curveball-heavy left-handers with control problems who also have big durability questions. Uh, and, don't, and don't have big fastballs. They sort of survive right. by other means, as you mentioned, yeah. the curveball. And yeah. Pomeranz has added a cutter this year, so he might have like a slightly more diverse repertoire where Hill is mostly just like attack you with curveballs. Hill's curveball is aesthetically... It's very good. It's really fun to watch. He, it has just like the way he finishes it, yep. it just creates a shape. That is just, is just, for example, it just resonates inside the human mind. I don't know what it is. It's great though. It's, it's like uh, a conch shell. Yeah, I think uh, Rich Hill's curveball is well, it has to be one of the five best curveballs in baseball. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, the question is, can he throw the curveball if he's on the disabled list? So, <laughs> uh, that's that's the big question with Hill and probably with Pomeranz. They are very similar pitchers. Uh, Pomeranz just comes with a couple extra years of control and youth, and so that's why Pomeranz was more valuable than Hill. Right, but it, you know, he probably uh, and so he'll uh, likely will not fetch as much. You say? No, I mean the Buster only I think reported that the, the A's asked for Anderson Espinosa in exchange for Hill and were turned down, and right. then the Red Sox moved on to uh, Drew Pomeranz when they found the price for Hill too high. Do you think just out of principle it would be, or for uh, you know public relations, uh, um, it would be difficult for the Red Sox to make any sort of trade for Rich Hill because they they had him. And yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think, like, uh, if you're the Mets right now and the Nationals called you and said, we want to give you Daniel Murphy back, you wouldn't be like, nah, six months ago we didn't think Daniel Murphy was for real. You'd be like, yes, please, I'll take Daniel Murphy. Like, there's new information, and I think teams can say, look, we, you know, we didn't know what Rich Hill was going to be after four starts last September. Now we've got a half season of Rich Hill pitching really well. We have more information. We've changed our opinions. We're flexible. We're not so entrenched in our beliefs that we're not willing to update them when new evidence comes in. Uh, so I think, you know, Red Sox fans wish they would have re-signed Rich Hill, and if they traded for Rich Hill, Red Sox fans would be like, oh, neat, this guy, he was really good. I, w- I want to ask you one last thing. Uh, we've noticed a couple trades uh, just over the last six months or so between – um, between the Red Sox and the Padres, uh, we, you know, this Anderson Espinosa trade and for Pomeranz, uh, there was the Craig Kimball trade, right? So we have here two pretty high-profile trades occurring yep. between the same teams. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was thinking about not that there's any the same sort of imbalance here, but I think famously the was it the Yankees and the Kansas City Athletics in the mid 50s and 60s. Uh, those two teams they made quite a few trades. A dozen trades together, dozens of trades maybe, lots yeah. of trades. In, yeah. in many cases, there was talent going from Kansas City to New York. Right. That was an imbalance. But I was wondering if off the top of your head, you could uh, you could think of any uh, any teams that have made what you consider an unusually uh, large number of trades together. So it's not necessarily teams. It's usually executive relationships. So this actually came up last week with Dombrowski because he acquired Brad Sigler from the Diamondbacks for oh, yeah, what was right. considered to be not a great return for a pretty good relief pitcher. 
uh, I was like, well, a, a side-arming right-hander, so it might be better fit as a specialist, but he was serving as the Diamondbacks closer, and certainly there was interest in Ziegler in, in the market from other teams, and, the, and I think the return in the, within the game was kind of considered a little bit underwhelming for what Ziegler is. Uh, but Dombrowski and Tony Larusa are apparently quite close and have been quite close for a very long time. Um, and so it's not like Dombrowski and Larusa have made a ton of trades together since Larusa has not been running a team for a very long time. But it there was a question of like whether uh, Dombrowski got a little bit of a discount as a friend because him and Tony Larusa have been close for a while. And maybe Larusa said, well, look, if I consider all these offers are you know, similar-ish and I don't just determine that there's one that's clearly better than the others, I'm just going to send him to my friend. Um, I think in terms of like teams that trade together frequently, uh, I think Kevin Towers was noted as like trading with the Mariners a, a bunch. Like there was like the, the annual junk for junk, uh, San Diego, Seattle trades that happened pretty frequently. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm trying to think of like the, uh, the, the Royals and Braves, yeah, like Dave right, Moore's yeah. connection to the Braves seems like every former Brave ends up in Kansas City at some point. Um, right, or vice versa. Well, that always used to be, that almost did seem like a situation where Kansas City was the farm team for Atlanta, right? But that, that of course has, uh. Well, I think it flipped, right? After Moore went to Kansas City, uh, and they started trying to kind of rebuild themselves, they started taking on a, on a lot of Atlanta's kind of failed prospects and guys who had been there when Moore was the farm director in Atlanta. So that's why Jeff Francoeur ended up there and Chris Medlin and, um, guys who were highly thought of in Atlanta five years ago all suddenly started showing up in Kansas City. Right, but it, uh, yeah, but things have turned out pretty well for Kansas City. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, yeah, I, that's what I've heard. Okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, I guess that's it. Do you feel like that's it? We didn't talk uh, about the end of the trade value series, Mike Trout. Uh, you seem you seem remarkably uninterested in it, even last week. No, no, no. We talked about uh, we talked very about very briefly. Well, we talked about Clayton Kershaw. That was the, that was the yeah. big news. Yeah, that was something. Well, you've all, you've written it. You said I've all written the, it. All people have read it. Things. Yeah. People have gotten angry about various True. picks. Yeah, they've mocked, but whatever. They read. <clears throat> I felt uh, the greatest sympathy for you, which is a rare feeling. Um, w- but with regard to the Noah Syndergaard pick, that seemed okay. to be particularly difficult. That was challenging. Syndergaard and Garrett Cole, I think, like these injured, really talented pitchers. Like I don't know, put them wherever you want. You can put them five. You can put them off the list. Like. Mm-hmm. I I have no idea what you do with these guys. I suppose for like the absolute. So with regard to any of those trades that, because you know, obviously you have to imagine yourself like this this player that I've put at twenty, like would he fetch as much as the player I've put at ten? You yeah. hope the answer is no, right? Right. Yeah. You, but, you do hope the answer is no. <laughs> but like in every case, in every case too, like all it takes is one team, right? Right. Yep. It's a winner's curse. Like the the team that acquires a player often pays. Uh, more than anyone else would pay. And right. so you have potentially one team that just goes off the rails and says, this guy's worth, you know, Shelby Miller's worth Dansby Swanson and Ender Ciarte and Aaron Blair. And by any rational method, he's not. But that's what they paid. Right. And so you had to consider that, I assume, well, well you had to weigh that in particular when you were looking at Trout, who's making yeah. quite a bit of money right. uh, against um, some of these other players, like probably, I mean, Correa, for example. Yeah. Seager or Bryant. Yeah. Right, guys who are who are uh, hugely cost-controlled, but just, I mean, but, well, of course, no one is doing what Mike Trout's doing, so. Yeah, I mean, I think in talking with people in the game uh, about that question, the general consensus is, like, you couldn't go wrong with any of these guys, right? Like, if you have Carlos Correa or Chris Bryant or Corey Seager or Mike Trout, like, you're happy, and you're not interested in moving any of those guys. Like, if you have them, you're good. You're not, like, 
sitting around thinking about like how can I move this guy for a slightly better franchise player? You're like, no, we're we're gonna focus on other problems. We've got our guy. Uh, but if say all four of them were put on the blocks, and the question is like which one would return the most in trade? Trout's the one you could go to your owner and say like, put rationality aside. We have a chance to acquire like a basically guaranteed Hall of Famer. Uh, he's gonna you know if he plays long enough for us and we can get him some kind of extension, which is gonna cost a lot of money. But if we can get him to stay here for 10 years, he'll probably go in wearing our hat and we'll have a generational player to bring back for the next 30 years and like build a statue of him outside of our ballpark. Uh, we have a chance to like really define our franchise here in a way that like you can dream on with Correa and Seager and Bryant, but not, <laughs> not be nearly as confident because they don't, they're not already at 50 career war or whatever Trout's at. So, uh, I think with Trout, you could potentially sell your owner on like, I'm going to trade every farm, every prospect in our farm system for this guy. And he'd be like, oh, okay, that's fine. Cause I get the best player in baseball versus right. if you try to do that for Corey Seager and then Seager regresses and, you know, turns into a good, but not great player. Uh, you're getting fired for that probably. Right. You can't hang your head on it the same sort of way. Yeah, right. Right. And, and selling your owner to, on an irrational love of a 21 year old because of aging curves is just harder than saying, look, this is the best player we've seen in 50 years. Yeah. You know, Trout's put up uh, four of the top seven seasons, four of the top seasons since he started in, uh, you know, playing full time. I guess in 2012 yeah. was it? Yeah. He, he's pretty good. He's uh, he's probably going to put up the best season this year too. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any dissent. Mike Trout is amazing. Yeah, and yet only one MVP award so far. Yeah. Okay. So there's some dissent from baseball writers <laughs> who are silly. Well, but it's, I guess what? Uh, there have been a couple cases. Well, Donaldson last year had a pretty good yeah, claim. Donaldson's right? great. I mean, right. So, like, you know, I, I think that, like, the um, the writers have not necessarily been so – it's the definition of the award they're giving out is silly. Right. But, like, if it was called the Best Player Award, Trout would have four or five of them. Right. Okay. Hey, you fulfill your obligation. All right. All right. Uh, so thank you, Dave Cameron. Welcome. That has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. 